Welcome to the Branches Podcast. Following the lead of Jesus, we seek to embrace people regardless of their background or their present ground in the hope they find holy ground. We are a church for people who don't go to church. If you'd like to learn more about the reckless love of Jesus or our community of faith, please visit our website at branchesoc.com. Hello, good morning. Today I'm going to read our scripture and and it's Matthew 6, 1 through 4. It's, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Good morning. Grab your Bibles, if you could. Open up to Matthew chapter 6. So... I've noticed that a few of your names are not on the lists on the side. It means you did not make the honor roll. Don't take it personal. So we are going to be finishing up here on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, as we've shared, we're not going in order. Uh, we're bouncing all over the place. And the passage this morning brought my attention directly to Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 4, and then it made me think about an experience that I had uh, when I was in college. And I'll hopefully make the connection clear to you here in a second. But when I was just graduating high school, that was the time that I had made, as best I could, the decision to follow Jesus. Isn't that how it works? Like, we, we're just doing the best we can to make that decision. Um, and so I made that decision, and I decided to go to Point Loma Nazarene College at the time. Now it's a university, so it's stepped up a level since I left. And when I went there, I said, okay, now let's do this Christian thing. I didn't know what it was, but I knew it was different than my life. And one of the things that I did right away was I heard about this thing called Ocean Beach Outreach. And I had grown up surfing at Ocean Beach. And Ocean Beach is, if you've seen movies about the 70s with drugs and long hair and colorful uh, VW vans, that's Ocean Beach. And that was my home. That's where I spent so much of my time was in that area. So when I heard about Ocean Beach Outreach, they were gonna care for the homeless. I'm like, I'm in, let's do this. But the reason I went was not because I wanted to really care for the poor. My heart wasn't super compassionate. I didn't grow up doing that. Um, I wasn't guilted into it. Like a lot of us, that happens. You feel like you should be doing it. It just sounded adventurous. It was outside of my world. Like, I get to go hang out with the street people. Yeah! That's why I did it. But I got tricked when I got there. So we were handing out food, and then we'd do a worship service, and I was a freshman, and something happened. Because I'd made a decision to follow Christ before that. God had done something in my heart and in my mind that drew me to him but I hadn't had an encounter with him. But once I was around those in need, those who were hungry, those who were sick, those who needed to be clothed, those who were desperate, 
That's when I had the encounter with God. Isn't that what we want? I mean, we have this church for that purpose. We talk about our mission, change lives. Or if you want to stretch it out and say it with more words, a church for people and go to church. We want to see people's lives change, but we can't do that. Only God can. And when you have an encounter with him, things happen. And this Ocean Beach outreach that I thought was just this feeding program for those on the street was so much more. I started just handing out cans of food and smiling at them, and then they asked me to play guitar, so I'd play guitar in the band. And then I started to know people, Maria and Juan. Maria uh, was so beautiful. She had four children, just the sweetest, most caring lady. To her, this wasn't Ocean Beach outreach. This wasn't a feeding for the homeless. For her, she said this consistently, this is our church. And she would bring her friends and the other people from the street community. And people on the street don't necessarily live on the street. Sometimes they're on the street. Sometimes they spend most of their time on the street. Sometimes they're living with other families. But she had these four kids and she was uh, dating Juan and they'd been dating for years now. He lived in the house and he was basically the dad to these kids and loved these children as his his own. And she said, we want to get married. This was around my junior year and I was still doing Ocean Beach Outreach. And so we, we, we couldn't marry them. We weren't pastors. So we found somebody that we knew and we brought them in and, and they got married. She goes, I want to get married at the church. So college students got, you know, some, they f- pulled some money together and f- found her a white wedding dress. And um, I don't know if he had a suit or didn't have a suit. I don't, I don't remember those details because I'm a guy. But we had a wedding. It, it turned from just handing out food to being with our friends that were poor. And this is the thing that you need to understand about poverty. Poverty is not a person. Poverty is a stage of life. We will all be poor at one time or another. And this was their time. They've since, things have changed for them. Um, They're still leaders in the community. They're beautiful people. Isn't that what we want though, to have that encounter with God? Isn't that what we hunger for? So if you could, open up to Matthew chapter 6, because Jesus addresses this, but he's talking to a people who are in the habit of caring for the needy. As you see here, I chose the New Living Translation for right now. Earlier you heard it from the NIV, um, and the Bibles that are being passed out are from the NIV. But I like saying it sometimes in, in practical terms, and the New Living Translation does that. Verse 1, watch out, which means be careful, look out. Don't do your good deeds publicly to be admired by others, for you will lose the reward from your Father in heaven. Notice this that he says here in verse two. When you give. It was an expectation. It was part of their culture. It was part of the Jewish culture to give. So he doesn't say in the Sermon on the Mount, now make sure you give. You know you gotta care for the, he says it in other places, but he's talking to a people where this is what they do. Then he goes on to say, when you give to someone in need, don't do as the hypocrites do, blowing trumpets in the synagogues and streets to call attention to their acts of charity. I tell you the truth, they have received all the reward they will ever get. And then he says again, but when you give, see, Jesus is saying, you know, when you give, it's understood. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Verse four, give your gifts in private and your father who sees everything will reward you. Does anybody else have a hard time saying that word reward? Just me? Okay. 
reward. So if I mess it up, it's because I got a speech problem. Giving your gifts in private. So the expectation is we're going to give. But Jesus is talking to a particular people at a particular time. And if Jesus were to speak to us, and we, those of us in this room, those of us in San Clemente, Laguna Niguel, San Juan, Dana Point, Oceanside, Southern California, I think he would emphasize something different. Because if he was speaking to us, it's not part of our habit. It's not part of who we are to have a lifestyle in our culture to give, to care for the needy. When our kids are going to the orphanage in Mexico like they did this, uh, the weekend before, we had other families going, hey, can we go? Because our kids don't get to see that. They aren't, we hear that all the time. Hey, we heard you're doing a feeding thing. Where's that? When's that happening? Because it's not part of the culture. It's not what we do. So Jesus wouldn't say, you know, when you give, because it's not part of our habit. In fact, the church and the culture in terms of financial giving, charitable giving, is about the same. The church is like a tiny bit higher. I think we're at like an average, across the whole United States, the average church goer gives 1.5% to charitable giving. It's just not what we do. Yet, Jesus says to his people, and this is the, the NIV translation, be careful not to practice your righteousness. What do you practice? I know the things I practice. I know the things that I do so often that they're like habit for me, that I do them so often that I don't have to think about it. I don't have to let my left hand know what my right hand's doing because I'm doing it all the time. We need to develop a habit, a practice. As the leader of this community of faith, I have to apologize because I have not led us the past few years as strongly as I should have and in reality could have because of other circumstances in leading us to develop this practice. We have our ministry partners that we work with in San Juan. We have our ministry partners that we work in El Salvador uh, with iSanctuary. And we used to be partnered with iHope, but they, um, they had to close their doors. And they work with the community in need around us. And so God's been put on my heart, you, meaning me, you need to get back into the practice of this. And then I realized as, as the lead pastor that I need to make sure that we have this practice. And so if you haven't noticed over the past you know, month or two, we've been trying to line things up the way they're supposed to be again to make sure things are plumb. And so uh, what I've done for this morning is I've asked the pro to come. Uh, I've asked someone to come and coach us. Uh, I'd like to invite Mary Purdue up, if you could welcome her up, please. So Mary heads up Family Assistance Ministries. Uh, so this past Saturday, or yesterday, if some of you were there uh, doing the, um, the handing out of the food and the packing, that organization, she heads up. So right now you can already imagine the halo above her head, right? You don't need to do that. She's just as messed up as the rest of us. Um, in fact, cool little story, we went uh, to go get a tour and see how we as a church can be involved. And she goes, Dave, Dave was actually in, um, I think he was in Mexico. He was probably serving somewhere else. But he couldn't join us. So we were, oh, no, he was out of town. He, never mind, he was camping. So we were hanging out with Mary. She goes, I know Dave. I was the lunch lady at his school. So she has a life. But I wanted her to coach us because we talk about caring for the needy. 
Who are the needy? And I want, us, I want to direct our attention to another passage that's one of my favorites. So if you can jump in your Bible, go to Matthew 25. And Jesus says, for I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes, clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And the disciples that were there went, when did we ever do this? Like, this didn't go down. This didn't, what do you, when did we ever do this for you? And then Jesus says, somewhere, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. So I'm asking Mary to help us. Can you, since you work with those in need, who are the poor by your definition? Well, <clears throat> they're you and me. They're, you know, they're amongst us every single day. Um, when you encounter, when you're at FAM and you encounter somebody who's coming in to ask for help, um, they're humble. They are, they've been in every profession. Um, they've been people who were laid off a long time ago and couldn't get their feet back under them. Excuse me. Um, it is the executive who showed up one day in a three-piece suit, a baseball cap, and sunglasses. He didn't want to be seen, and uh, he sat with the case manager and started unpacking his life. And first thing we do at FAM is let people tell their story. There's often tears. And then we start with a budget, which engages the logical side of the brain. I want to get that out real quickly, just because we want to do the practical. Um, and then the emotion has gone a little bit. Now we're working on solutions based on finances. Um, and so this executive said to the case manager, I have a couple of thousand dollars left in the bank and I don't know what I should do. Um, I, years ago, I was transferred to New York. My wife said, I don't want to go. So of course I'm not going to go. Um, lost my job eventually. Went through savings, went through retirement, was unable to reland a job. And um, my wife left me. And so he came in, a bit of a broken man, and um, as he's looking down, he said, I have $2,000 left. Morally, I owe it to the bank for the, the mortgage that I'm not going to be able to continue. And yet, if I do that, my daughter and I, wife left him and his high school age daughter, will be living in our car. You know, the, and your heart, every day breaks with the stories, and we also knew at that moment he was also trying to hold it together um, for his daughter as well. So we cannot tell people what to do, but we can explore options with them. So we sat down and did a scenario, you know, what's option one, what's pros and cons, option two, pros and cons. At the end of that um, case management session, he knew what to do. He didn't tell us, he figured out what he was gonna do, and he left. Every single case, every scenario is different. We had a senior who showed up with a three-day eviction notice sobbing, and she said, <clears throat> you know, I, I'm, I'm gonna lose my place. And as they started unpacking her finances, the case, the case manager said, well, you make enough money to pay your mortgage or your homeowners association. You own your mobile home outright. Why haven't you paid it in seven months? Well, seven months prior, her 40-year-old son was diagnosed with stage four cancer. So at that moment, her money, her mind, and her emotions went into trying to save his life, of course. So we called the homeowners association and we said, hey, what if we have her come in the first of every month? She'll make a payment, we'll match it, and in four months she'll be caught up. But better than that, She'll be back on track of paying her bills. They said, great. Had they said no, we would have found a way to pay that. 
if it was more than we could have afforded for a person that month, we would have called on partners in the um, community to help because we knew it made sense. And we would have still had her come in the first of every month to retrain her to pay her bills. So every scenario is different. We've had, um, one day I went out back into the food pantry and there was this little guy, four years old, looking up and I go, hey buddy, you pound it. And he pounds my fist and he goes, I'm hungry. And he said, oh, you know, your heart. And so I went back in talking to the case managers and they said, oh yeah, dad moved down here for a job. And with the rains last year, lost his job because it was construction. Mom, dad, and their two kids live in the car. Mom is in her 30s, so is dad. She has severe arthritis, cannot work. And that's where they ended, landed in their car. So our job is to help people get back out of their cars, out of the tents, um, certainly out of the encampments, anywhere that people are finding themselves land. We had a, four, a guy in his 50s show up crying. He was exhausted. He was filthy. He smelled. He, he just was beat up by life. And he sat with the case manager, and he goes, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what's next. And so as the case manager started unpacking the story with him, uh, found out that his dad had been a truck driver and that's something he would love to do. So we called a truck driving school in Colton. They accepted him. We helped him with his online application, got him an outfit from our free boutique, got him food, a bus pass, all the way up to Colton. And a year later, a big rig comes down the street. He jumps out, runs in, throws the checks down and says, help somebody else. He had a two-bedroom apartment in... Dana Point, and by the way, he'd reconnected with his kids. He'd had a wife, kids, house, every job, everything. And little by little, things started peeling away. And what we find is, when people are dealing with that much stress, they're usually... Thank you. Thank you. Whenever you need it, you just nod and I'll give you your water. <laughs> okay. Um, people are, are... Usually when people are dealing with that much stress, when they show up at FAM... Um, they're dealing about 12 points lower than their own IQ. And that's from stress. So that's why you see somebody you know who's not able to pay their rent or their mortgage and they're holding a Starbucks cup and you're thinking, wait, that doesn't equate. Well, they're not thinking straight. They're looking for emotional comfort. So we help them unpack that. We help them look at their options. We help them run scenarios. They have to pick what scenario they follow and they have to do the hard work. It is, you know, it, Sometimes volunteers in the back will come in and go, can I just hang out for a minute inside? My neighbor's here. And I, I don't think that they want me to know they're here getting assistance. So it's the people beside you a lot of times. And often when I go and speak places, afterwards people will come up and go, you helped me when we were homeless or you helped me not become homeless. So 90% of those we see are people trying not to become homeless. Um, mostly people come when it's that three-day notice their utilities have been turned off or about to be turned off, so it's a huge cost to get it back on. So we teach them how to negotiate with utility companies, make payments, et cetera. We'll make payments with them. We will not cure it all. We want to be partners in it and have you know, people step up to the plate and join us in um, taking care of things. So you said something that stuck out to me because you mentioned that we talked about who are the poor and you started going through the list of people. I have... I have situations where I'll see someone and I will determine, no, you don't need help because you can do this yourself. Um, I was thinking, you shared a story with me when, when we were together this last week about the two people on the street, the young people. And sometimes when I see young people on the street, I'm like, oh, you're doing drugs. You, you earned your way here. This is your fault. Those, those things go through my head. And so you saw those, you were talked about a young girl that you knew that kept coming in 
And then this young guy that came down. Can you share that sure. interaction? Sure. It was a Friday afternoon. We were closed for distribution, and a couple uh, people came to the door. We will always give out a little bit of food, uh, but we really want people to come when case managers are there because we want to help them tackle the bigger issue. So I walked out, and I was leaving, and I just said, hey, what are you doing here? And the guy goes, hey, it's beautiful here. Who wouldn't want it? And I go, no, no. What are you doing here? And he goes, well, this, I arrived in town yesterday, and this fine young woman brought me here. I said, where are you from? Well, yesterday I was in Apple Valley, and they gave me a bus ticket, and this was the end of the bus line. It's like, okay, well, I'm, taking a, I'm keeping a list of those things. <clears throat> but I said, so where are you from before that? And he said, Washington. And I said, well, can we help you get back to your family in Washington? And he looked down, and he said, I'm in trouble there. And I said, well, can we help you get back there and take care of your trouble? He's still looking down. I said, how old are you? He said, 28. I said, do you know how many lifetimes I have lived, how many different seasons I've had? <clears throat> <laughs> You're doing good, thank you. <clears throat> how many different seasons I've had and in, in lives that I've lived since I was 28. He's still looking down. I said, okay, I want you to think about where you slept last night and the people you were with. Is that what you want your future to be? And he looked up immediately and said, okay, I'll go. So we got him immediately away from the cute homeless girl in with a case manager, and they started working on a plan to get him back to Washington. With that plan is legal aid because he was in uh, legal trouble. Let's get it taken care of and move on with life unless that's what you want your life to be. I immediately turned to the young woman and said, Amanda, and she goes, I'm fine. I go, honey, you're not fine. It's dangerous out there. It's not sanitary. It's, it's not safe. She goes, I'm fine. Okay. When you're ready, you let me know. A week later, she showed up. She said, okay, I'm ready. Someone tried to attack me with scissors last night. She was also 28. She's dealing with schizophrenia. There's no place for somebody who... who there, there are some places for people that are mentally ill or dealing with a mental illness or a physical disability, but not enough places. We called her family. And mom said, yes, please send her back to Ohio. Her brother has a room where she can stay. We've helped 26 people in the last 18 months find their place, their support structure. One guy, again in his 50s, has been homeless for a long time. When he came in, we reconnected him with his brothers who all live in Colorado who hadn't seen him in 30 years. It's, you know, one more story. I heard a ding. Is that us? I don't know. I was wondering that too. <laughs> Someone wants you to go on to the next story, I guess. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, we had a young man come in who's 24 years old, uh, pacing exhausted, starving. A case manager gave him food as he was continuing to shove food in his mouth. Um, he just said, I don't even know why I'm here. Three people this week told me to come to FAM. because I don't even know what you do. I don't know why I'm here. Well, what's your story? He had been, uh, he grew up in Oklahoma, um, had an addiction, was sent out to a sober living home in San Clemente because there's lots of commercials back, back east and uh, Midwest about these great places in San Clemente and um, uh, got kicked out because he blew it. And so he decided this was his life now. He was gonna live on the streets because he remembered the words he had with his dad. He remembered the things he said to his dad and he remembered the things dad said to him. And they were harsh, of course. You know, when you're frustrated and you don't know and you've tried everything in every way, sometimes things are said. And so we talked him into letting us call dad. We've never once had a family member refuse. Um, and so we called dad, and dad was crying. He knew his son had been missing for a week. Didn't know where he was or how to find him. So 
they're on the phone reconciling. We're getting food for him, you know, outfit. Um, and then when he got off the phone, I realized we didn't have any suitcases left. So I gave my credit card to the volunteer at the front desk and I said, please go get him a rolling suitcase. He goes, no, please, I don't deserve that. Why are you guys so nice? He just kept looking down saying, I don't deserve this. Like he thought that his life at 24, he was gonna be relegated to living on the streets in the drug culture with homeless people. There was no option for him. His self-talk, the enemy, all the things in his head were saying, you, you don't deserve this. And I go, oh my gosh, you know, I've raised three kids. If one of my kids was out there lost, I would hope, and I told him this, I would hope somebody would help. So of course you deserve this. This isn't your life story. There's gonna be next week and next month and next year. Let us help you now. And later in life, you'll do something for somebody else. When Mary's sharing, she's talking about who are the poor. I hope that you're able to see yourself in those situations because that's the first step for us. We like to think that those in need are separate from us. But we are just one circumstance away from being that person in need. Being in need is a stage of life and sometimes you're going to hit it several times. We hear often, I never thought I would be here. I used to give here, or I used to give other places. This was not my plan. I, when, when she was sharing each of those stories, and I, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but I could see myself being in each of those situations. I could see myself, I remember the first time that I had a surgery and they gave me um, oxycodone. I was like, this stuff's amazing. I could see myself at that moment being addicted to that drug. It, life seemed really good with that. And, and, and I would start thinking about it. Don't think that we're that separated from being in that situation and going down that road. And who hasn't grown up and really ticked off everyone around you? Even if you think you're the most popular person on the planet, you can create these conflicts and these, these problems to the point where you can't go back to a certain place. And so you have this 28-year-old running from those things. Not wanting, I mean, who wants, who says, you know what, I really like conflict resolution. I really enjoy, no, but some people, I really don't like conflict, and some people are farther on the spectrum of not liking conflict, but to get peace, you have to have conflict resolution, and none of us really like it, and so we know what it could be like to be separated and out on your own. When we went to visit, um, we keep saying FAM, if you haven't figured out, Family Assistance Ministries, FAM, that's the short way to say it. When we went on the tour there, it's difficult for me to go to FAM, to go to the Dream House in LA, certain rescue missions I've been to. Um, and we had someone on our staff that said the same thing as me. It's difficult to go because it's different being on this side. I was on the other side. My mom was raising two of us. She was an alcoholic. And yet, she didn't want to go and get the help because she was too prideful. So she, we never ended up going. My brother and I found sneaky ways to get free handouts and things. And yet then you get to this point where we have a home, we have three kids, our cars are paid off, and we can be like, well, you know, we, we picked ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet just a few years ago, I was so sick that people were caring for me. And then you feel weird when people are caring for your need because like, no, 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 I'm the one that cares for people's needs. And then you feel as if you're less. It's just a stage of life. We have so many people at branches that are sick, like physically broken. 
And you always think, I never thought this would be me. And in fact, there was one particular person that in my life has served and cared for us personally in so many ways. I've seen him behind the scenes caring for others. And now he's at a point where we're trying to care for him and he's having a hard time receiving it. Because he said, I'm used to being on the other side. I'm usually the one that helps the people in need. It doesn't feel right, but that's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way God's kingdom is supposed to be. You shared, um, when we walked into the door, one of the first pictures on the right was this uh, lady. Carol. She's blind, and she's a senior, and she takes the access bus to get to FAM to get her food. Um, She lived with her daughter, who just passed away a couple weeks ago. So we're trying to help her not land on the streets, um, figure out what her new source of stability will be. Um, But she'll wait three hours for that bus to come and get her and bring her up. Uh, Not a perfect system, and because we're here in South Orange County, fewer services, you wait longer for things like that when you're in need. You also shared about schools, and you shared about a teacher that you work with um, that always... Can you share that story? Sure. There's a kindergarten teacher at a local school here who every year, the week of Valentine's Day, um, they talk about compassion, and then they make lunches for the homeless for Valentine's Day. And they bring us in, and they... uh, tell stories, the kids tell all the stories of what their parents say when they're in their car and they pass somebody on the streets. Um, not things sometimes parents would want them to share and other things were more compassionate. Um, uh, but every year, every single year, there's an AM and PM kindergarten and there's at least one student there who is homeless. The teacher knows it and we know it, but none of the other students know it. And that teacher helps them make a lunch. So it, it, just, it just points it out that, it, you know, they're amongst us, everybody. We're all there. Um, so we had the feeding yesterday, and my, uh, my daughter and my wife were able to go. And so as she was there, my daughter went, oh, look, there's some of my classmates. And they were coming through the line to get food, and she was talking to them. They were kids that she went to school with. If you go to school or, or if you have children that are at school, you don't realize what's happening there behind the scenes. We have friends here that teach at St. Margaret's. And St. Margaret's is a very high-end private school. Even at that school, I know of kids who are needy. Hey, well, you go to St. Margaret's. That's because the school's scholarshiping them to go there. In fact, they live in the community that La Casa's at. And some of them have made those connections because of La Casa, and they're able to get this academy-style education. But that doesn't mean just because they're at St. Margaret's that the family's not still in need. And so you have these students rolling up to the school in their designer clothes, and some of them have nice cars, and some of them, their parents make them ride their bike. But whatever it is, they're at all different places, but they don't even realize that next to them are students that are in desperate need because they just assume, because we've lost our eyes to see the needs around us. And when you were sharing about that one teacher, and she does these programs, and, and I believe, if, if I messed this story up, let me know, but... Every year, no one in the class knows it, but there's at least one or two students that are homeless that are in her first grade class or kindergarten kindergarten class. Exactly. So as we move on to the next question, how, what else would you want to tell us in terms of when Jesus says, whatever you've done for the least of these, you've done unto me. Who are the least of these? Who are the poor? Who are those in need? You know, Sometimes it's also poor in spirit. Sometimes it is, you know, just helping the person next to you out with something that seems so little. And sometimes people minimize the little bit that they can do. 
it all works together. We are all parts of the body, right? Um, we are all different parts. Uh, it is everybody. And again, you, you don't know. Some people are prideful. I was a single mom. I wasn't going to ask for help. Um, it showed up at my doorstep often. I had a one-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. It was not my plan to be a single mom of three little kids like that years ago. And I would walk out some mornings, and there would be a box of food on my porch. I had no idea who did it. I had a lot of peanut butter. <laughs> that lasts a long time. That's a good thing. Um, but you just, you just never know. And especially families. You know, everybody here is very aware of um, the single person on the street who's dealing with a mental illness because they're there and you see them. But the families who are homeless live in their cars. They don't want you to know that. They're very afraid that they're going to lose their kids. So they hide and they move from neighborhood to neighborhood and they stay under the radar. We had the first uh, family assessment week um, for homeless families last year. Um, we combined with agencies across the county and started something called the A2 cohort, which is now the Family Solutions Collaboration. And we, are, we have a goal of ending family homelessness by 2020. Um, we've helped on the county level. We've gotten them to release some funds to help with a, a computer system, a, a registration where we can get everybody into um, this coordinated entry system. And that way, when they're traveling from place to place, we know where they've been, what kind of help they received, and what they need to get back on their feet. So working really hard on making those kind of changes. But you're not going to know unless they open up to you and tell you that they're homeless. We had a woman, sorry, another story. We had a woman who worked, works for UCI and uh, doing great, a single mom, four kids. Um, and her oldest decided it was time to go live with dad. And of course, great, okay, goes, boom, $900 difference in her income. She wasn't going to make it with her rent. And so she kept looking and looking. She could not find an apartment to rent for herself and her three other kids. They ended up in the car for a couple months. And then someone told her about fam, and she came up. We were able to get her into our shelter, and then we coached her up. What, you know, what is it that you need? You're going to need more income in order to survive. So how are you going to get that? She went and talked to her supervisor. There was a course she could take, um, which would give her a certificate, which would increase her income. So she lived in Gilchrist House, our shelter, for homeless women, homeless women and kids. Um, and she's almost graduated. And when she graduates, she will be able to get a job that pays more and they'll be settled again. But it's that gap, that gap in someone's life where they stop trusting their own judgment because everything they tried has failed. Um, or they just need a little hand up, someone coming alongside and saying, you know what, let me pick up the slack here. And then you take over and move on. So... When, you came, when, when Mary came in, she had her little name tag that says Family Assistance Ministry, and uh, Dave saw that, and he was, uh, Mary, I don't think you're going to need that around here. So, but if you had it on right now, I would take it off, because I'd want you to take off the director title and you know, boss of fam. Why, why are you doing this? Why do, why do you work with the hungry, the thirsty, those who aren't clothed, those who are mentally ill, those who are in need, why on a personal level do you do this? And how do you get through this? Okay, as I raised my three kids, <clears throat> all my research in parenting, et cetera, said, sorry, <clears throat> said that, um, you know, there's people who are intrinsically motivated. Um, there's things, people that see and act quickly. And, you know, those of us who have multiple kids or come from large families, you know, I, I just believed that. But in thinking about this question, I realized I was raised, um, I was youngest of seven, 
raised in a large Catholic family, um, and my parents both acted constantly. If you saw someone need, you got up and helped them. Um, my mom had had a lot of tragedy in her life, so I thought she was motivated because she knew what real life was. You help people, and you're all in it together. Look, at, I have a, a, a Sherpa guy. There's too much water here. <laughs> It's awesome. <laughs> um, so we were raised that when you walked outside and your neighbor's trash cans were still out and they were gone to work, you, pull, you pulled them up. Or you saw a neighbor taking her groceries out of her car, a woman, you went over and helped. It was, my mom would say, get out of the car and go help. You know, it wasn't demand, it was just automatic. And you just did it. You didn't complain, you didn't think twice, but you just got up and helped people. So I didn't know, I thought that I was you know, motivated by, that I could see someone in need, but now I think it was my parents. I remember being in seventh grade at St. John the Baptist in Costa Mesa, and a woman walked in and she said, boys and girls, there's people out there who need clothing. They don't have enough food or clothing. And it was the first time I'd heard something like that, and it broke my heart. And that was Jean Vorbath, who was starting SOS that year. That's um, been going strong ever since. The 70s, and you know, it was it. We were trained, we were taught. Um, so I see families now that come in and serve at Fam together, or our moms that pick up their kids from preschool and they head over to Fam for one hour to help read those labels on those cans. Every bag, every can, every um, box that comes in, you got to read the labels to make sure they're still within a certain expiration period. Well, we redistributed 2.7 million dollars worth of food and personal care items last year to people in this community who are in need. So every one of those items, you got to read the labels. What's a little harder when you've got older eyes, right? <clears throat> so we love the kids coming in and helping. And we're happy to have people come alongside that way. So I, I guess I'm thinking that it's just part of my DNA from how I was raised. Here, I'll trade you this water. <laughs> I and, actually brought it. And I'll, yeah, that's yours. Thank you. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you continue to do this when you see the pain, you <laughs> see the suffering, and then you see certain people... Like the judgmental thing clicks into your head. We're like, oh, why'd you put yourself in this situation? How do you, how do you get through this though? I don't, I don't go to the judgmental thing um, only because I grew up a uh, certain way. We weren't, we weren't super rich. We were fine. Um, didn't realize, you know, you, you don't realize sometimes in your kids when, the, when parents make the home a happy home, right? Um, there were still struggles, but, um, and then with my kids, I would just say every time I'd got, I received a notice that we had to move because the owner of the home was going to sell it, I would say, and it would say 30 days, and I had to pick up three kids, find a place to live, and do it in 30 days, and I would go, kids, it's adventure time. You know, I would try to make it fun every time, and so I'd be going, ah. <laughs> um, I had a lot of really good friends that helped me move uh, every time. Um, so what was the question? <laughs> how, how, how when you are surrounded by those in need. How do you emotionally, mentally get through this? Well, first of all, the people working at FAM, there's about 23 staff now. We have two shelters um, and permanent supportive housing and rapid rehousing, um, plus all the people that come for food or counseling or bills to be paid, et cetera. People, the right people in the right places make all the difference in the world. So a case manager, um, they carry a heavy load. They listen to stories every day. People constantly all day long and people who come in and they give them direction and then they 
don't follow that direction and fall further down, um, that can be discouraging for them. Um, but we have we make sure that every staff meeting every week, we pray for our community, we pray for our partners, um, we pray for our uh, clients, and then they always share stories so that it helps all of us stay in touch with who it is we're helping, why we're there, and every day we're in tears from stories, every day. But we're also in tears because someone will walk up back in and say, not homeless anymore, got out of the truck, you know, been running a business out of his truck for a year. Um, or we were able to, you know, help people get into our shelter. That's awesome. We, we, the very first man last year that we helped with our new permanent supportive housing project, um, and that's a HUD grant, so may or may not go away with new administration. That's okay. We'll figure it out. But he um, had been living on the streets for 40 years. Uh, he was a veteran, and he was in his 70s. And when we went out and did an assessment called the VI Spadat, um, it's done countywide now, um, he was the top most vulnerable, vulnerable person in Dana Point and San Clemente. And um, we were able to get in into this housing. It's a one-bedroom it's 500 square feet apartment in Rancho Santa Margarita. It's the only place we could afford with the funding we received. Um, and he walked in there and he looked around and he goes, I have a door? I go, yes, you, you have a door. And he goes, I have a bathroom? Like you have a door on your bathroom. He was so excited to see this. And, and with permanent supportive housing, um, it costs half for us as a community to have somebody housed with a mental illness um, than to have them on the streets. 100% reduction of law enforcement calls. Huge reduction in uh, hospital visits. And in fact, Mission Hospital caught the vision of this and did some support for us because they realize it alleviates that emergency room need. Um, so, did that answer your question? Yes, you did. <laughs> so, for us, the next step for us is how. And when we looked at the passage in Matthew chapter 6, it says here, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, and I just want to keep emphasizing that, it's what we do. As we talked about last week, in the kingdom of God, which is what we're citizens of, we're not from Dana Point, we're not from San Juan, we're not from Laguna Niguel, we are from the kingdom of God. When we make the decision to follow Jesus, we're citizens in his kingdom, and we're we're from, this is what we do. We give to the needy. We do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. When we hear that passage, and Greg actually mentioned it last week during the offering, which I forgot, by the way. Dave not only brings water, but he sent me a text. He goes, you forgot the offering. <laughs> so I guess we're going to do that at the end. But um, when, he, when Greg was sharing with the offering, he shared this passage. And as we hear that, you know, don't know what your right hand, that makes no sense to us, does it? It does if you go back up to the top of Matthew 6, verse 1. Do not practice your righteousness. Whatever we practice is a habit. It's a ritual. It's something we do over and over and over again. So for those of us, when we drive, you don't even think about it, do you? If you've learned how to drive, it's been, become such a habit, such a ritual, you don't even have to think about how things work. In fact, most of you can put your key in, put your feet down, put it in, drive somewhere, and not even remember how you got there. 
I'm not talking about being drunk or on any substance. I mean, you just can't remember because you're thinking about other things because you've practiced it so many times, you don't have to think about what your right hand's doing or what your left hand's doing, your right foot or your left foot. Well, we've reached the stage in our home where we are teaching one of our children to drive. Exactly. Those laughing, you've gone through this. It's terrifying when you're in it. And so when we first started, uh, my oldest was driving the car, and we put him in a parking lot with no cars around. And the initial problem was figuring out where does your right foot, there's no, this isn't even stick. This is just automatic. It's just, you don't use your left foot, you just use your right foot. So just trying to figure out which is the gas and which is the pedal. In fact, we took him in our street, on our street late at night, and we're going down. And at one point when we're driving, I saw him look down, and I went, no, because it hadn't become a habit. He hadn't practiced it enough. He had to know what his right foot was doing and what his left foot was doing, because at times he'd want to put his left foot on the brake, because it just kind of makes sense, right? Well, the right foot, that'll go to the gas. The left foot will go. I'm like, no, 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 don't do that. So we've gotten better at that to the point where it's become more practiced. He doesn't need to know what his right hand or his left foot, it's becoming more automatic. In terms of giving to the needy, we need to have that practiced. It needs to be intentional. It needs to be a ritual, a routine, like a workout, like a diet, like I wake up, I go to the bathroom. Some of you, that's just what you do. That's your rituals. For some of you, you wake up at four in the morning and you go to the bathroom, and then you go at six in the morning, and then you go to nine, but you know when you do what you do. Okay, when I wake up, I have my grandpa. He has the same breakfast every morning. It's a ritual. It's practice. He doesn't have to think about it. Peanut butter toast, orange juice, banana. Boom. That's it. Don't veer off of the menu. There needs to be a menu in our lives as followers of Christ where we're with the needy where we're walking with the needy. And so in closing, Mary, how, one of the things that we're going to struggle with is, well, is that enough or should we, is that too? So one of the things that we have as a rule here is promise low, deliver high. So for example, with our, our junior hires and our high schoolers, they're doing things. They have a plan. They don't know it yet. But Gabby has it set up for them where some of them are going to be writing notes to veterans, this is all from Visiting Fam, because she said, this is a need, this is helpful for veterans and seniors, just writing them notes. And I'm thinking, really, is that that big of a deal? But it is. And some of us, even the kids may go, really, is this making a difference? I want to show up. Everything helps. The, um, the children's ministry, they have a plan, and they've been working on it, and they're going to start putting it into practice of families. You're going to start hearing those details. But what are practical ways, even if we don't go through fam, just practical ways in our lives, how can we have eyes to see the needy? You can't give us the courage to step into that, but how do we get started? Okay, so first, let me tell you, when you see somebody on the street, I'm not a big fan of handing out cash. I'm a bigger fan of pointing them in the direction of finding help, so sending them to fam. <clears throat> um, it's important because when they're there, we can start working on their plan. How are they going to get back to stability? Um, I know there are times when you feel led to give out cash, and I have too. Um, so you follow your own conscience. It's between you and, and the Lord. Um, you, can do, you can do all sorts of practical things. You can do um, food drives. You can do clothing drives. You can, um, you know, we have two shelters. Um, two different churches come uh, once a month and do, um, one does a Bible study. First, they do a dinner, and then they offer a Bible study. It can't be mandatory. 
Um, and some people will stay for that. We've had a lot of people find their way back to the Lord that way. Another church comes and they do music. Sometimes it's worship music, sometimes it's not. Always comes with pizzas. Um, so we could do something like that once a month if somebody's called to do that. I know you said not through fam, but that's where my brain goes. Um, well, we'll get to the fam part. I want to see <laughs> other ways. That the, well, let's just focus on the fam part because I'll close with giving them some things that they can do practically. Okay. So what are some practical ways? Because just so you know, if you're part of Branches, congratulations. You're unpaid staff or fam. We've already committed you. Yes. So Thank we're going to have things set up as we work with them to find our place. Um, you won't always see Mary because Mary can't be everywhere. They have, how big is your staff? 23 staff and 200 weekly volunteers. And then you're not, so you, you have an office in San Clemente. You have one and you. We have a satellite in Dana Point that's only open one day a week, about two hours. Okay. Satellite in Semon Capistrano, also open for two hours. We're opening in Laguna Niguel at Community Presbyterian Church this next month. And then also Mission Viejo. Just for two hours, those, what, what happens is people come from all over South Orange County, all the way down. We start thinking about the amount of gas they're spending, right, and the time. And we were approached by these different churches that said, hey, you want to do it here? And it's like, let me think. Okay. Um, and so now we're helping people closer to their own community, but also it opens up for people who can't make their way down at all. So if you could now, there should be connection cards. I don't see them, though. There's no connection cards there, are they? Okay, rip pages out of your Bible, whatever you need to do. Do we have connection cards? Okay, so we're needy as a church. The connection cards are missing. All right, this, we're going to try something else. Grab your phones. I want you to grab your phones if you can, because we're going to have you uh, text to our Google number here at Branches, which means I have to look it up because it's not my personal number. Um, but at that, that's going to be your connection card. And we want you, if you are looking for ways to get involved with FAM, with the needy, we want to give you those opportunities through the other ministry partners we have. We want to help you to make these connections. So um, the number for the branches, Google number is uh, 257-2083. So 949-257-2083. 2083. And if you go on our website, of course, you guys go there all the time, right? Branchesoc.com. It'll show the ministry partners, and then you can always send a note, and you can get involved that way. So uh, for that reason, you have to take the steps. And I want to close with this. I want to bring our attention back to this passage. Matthew 25, 40. Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is Jesus speaking. When we give a cup of water, when we donate clothes, when we show up, when we give haircuts, when we give, uh, if you know how to do taxes and you show up to help do the taxes, if you give um, business counseling to those, if you uh, are connected with getting jobs for people, you all have different skills. We're the body of Christ. We all have our place. And no matter what we give, it's never going to seem like enough to us. I bet my pinky goes, man, I'm really not playing that big of a part here with the whole bug, bug body. I remember wrecking this pinky. It's very needed. It may not feel needed, but it's needed. Have you ever had an ingrown toenail? You don't realize how important your toe is until it doesn't work. We all play a part. It's not our job to decide how big of a job it is. It's our job to give. But when we give, I promise you, as you walk 
to see Christ, you will see him. You will have an encounter with him because he walks among the needy. And this will be my last words. Peter, and I've shared this so many times because it hits my heart so strong. When Jesus was resurrected and he came back, he said, go and tell the disciples that I'm here and tell Peter. Peter wasn't mentally disabled. He had food. He had a job, but he was needy. He had betrayed Jesus. And Jesus knew that, and he wanted him to know, you're good with me. Let Peter know I'm here, and let him know I said that. People need to know that, regardless of their situation. So let me pray for us. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And almost forgot again, the offering. Um, the offering baskets will come through. And, and as a church, we are always wrestling with how can we give this away. So pray for us in that. Um, could you join me by standing as I pray for us? Father God, uh, we surrender to you. I feel like this is just too short. There's so much more that needs to be shared, so much more that needs to be done. But Father, we, uh, we're going to walk behind you. We promise the best we know how to walk behind you and for you to lead us where you're at. Give us eyes to see and the courage to go and the humility to be where you need us to be. For those that are in need, Lord, give them the courage to ask for help. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hello there. Hey, there we go. All right. But for the grace of God go I. I heard that um, talking to a friend on a soccer field, just talking about both believers, thinking like how do people get into different situations. And uh, he mentioned that, and, I, and it struck me like that's so true. I look around at my life and the friendships I've had over the years and how some people have made it into that middle class, you know, wife, kids, dog, homeowner. And then there are probably the other half of my friends who I've either helped carry their casket or I've seen them just get worse and worse over the years and closer to being in a situation where I'm carrying their casket. And I, like, those were guys that I would bleed and die for in my teens and 20s. So, like, that statement really meant something to me. Like, what, what difference was there? There was no difference. We were making the same bad choices. And then, fast forward to 20 years later, it still remains the same. On July 22nd, this last summer, I was called into the office at eight in the morning after I had finished a project at work and I was handed my last paycheck. Um, I had applied at a different place and my employer found out about it. So they said, 
kick rocks. I had not been hired yet by my new place of employment. Dave called me out of, for some odd reason, to ask me to do something more than likely. <laughs> and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, well, um, organizing my tools. Oh, slow day at work? And then, no, I got fired. He's like, what? He's like, I'll call you back. Still waiting for the call back. However, <laughs> a different guy calls me and says, hey, just got off the phone with Dave. He said, you know, he told me a little bit about your situation. That's a bunch of garbage, whatever. I have something for you to do. And, you know, that statement was true. But for the grace of God, go I. I was nearly in that situation. I was doing, I was working out of the, the back of my wife's Honda Pilot with a bunch of tools that I would load and unload every morning, just trying to make it happen. And not wanting to take a, like go apply at a place because I was in a background process for my new job. And I got to see God move in our family like just big time. I was making more money than I was before I got fired, so it worked out. But for the grace of God, go I. It didn't necessarily have to work out that way. So, yes, we're never above it. We're all needy in some way. So, I'm going to pray. And then I'm going to remind you to get your kids and help clean up. That was like the one thing I didn't want to forget. All right. Father, thank you so much for putting people in our lives that are willing to help. Thank you for putting it on the hearts of individuals to make things happen so that others' suffering will be eased. As we go out this week, let us find opportunities to serve the needy. In Jesus' name, amen.